to be with you. Um, if you got your Bibles, please grab them and go to Psalm chapter 7. Psalm chapter 7. We are uh, been in the Psalms for the last, well, seven weeks, I guess, because we started in Psalm chapter 1. And uh, next week we'll be in chapter 8. Uh, as we look at Palm Sunday, there's actually some prophecies in Psalm chapter 8 that Jesus refers to in the Gospels uh, that go on Palm Sunday. So we'll be looking at that. And then Easter, we're going to be baptizing at least eight folks on Easter, which I'm super excited about. Uh, if you still want to be baptized, if you'd like to be baptized, uh, please just let us know this week or sign up on the website. Uh, uh, we will be having a class for those that want to get baptized um, next Sunday, uh, Sunday evening, uh, just to talk about it a little bit and what uh, the Bible says about it. Um, and then after Easter, we're going to get into the book of First Peter for a while, Lord, Lord willing. Uh, but Jesus is, is, Jesus is in charge, and he can change all that too, but that's kind of the plan of where we'll be going for the next couple of months. But Psalm chapter 7, let me just read this, then I'll pray again quickly, and we'll get into it. Psalm chapter 7, you'll see the subheading at the beginning, a Shigeon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. He says, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me, lest like a lion they tear apart my soul in pieces with no one to deliver. O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it and let him trample my life to the ground. And lay my glory in the dust, Selah. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it, return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end, and may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts. O oh, righteous God, my shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge, and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow. He has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head. And on his own skull, his violence descends. I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord, the Most High. Let's just bow again one more time. Father, thanks for this morning. Thanks for your word. It is indeed wonderful and majestic beyond all that we could ever express. Please open the eyes of our heart now by your spirit that we could see wonderful things from it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
uh, as we look at this text this morning, and I don't know if you picked up on this as we read, although I admit that this word is not found anywhere in the text, uh, the theme or the topic that arises from it as you look at it is that of injustice. Injustice. That David is experiencing um, a great injustice here uh, through gossip, through slander, but then also through the action that that gossip and that slander has caused others, namely probably King Saul, uh, to take against him and come after him and literally seek his life. You, again, in the, in the text there at the beginning, the subtext, kind of the heading, it says, he's saying this to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjamite. Uh, we don't know exactly who Cush is. Uh, most uh, commentaries, commentators, scholars uh, believe that this has to do with some of the stories that you will find in 1 Samuel, roughly uh, chapters 21 through like 26, and especially 24 through 26, where David is on the run from Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel, and because he did not obey the Lord, uh, God sought out for him a man after his own heart, and that man was David. And uh, even though Samuel the prophet came and anointed David as king, it is about probably somewhere about 10 to 12 years after David is anointed the king by Samuel that he actually takes the throne. And during that 10 to 12 years, he is most of the time mistreated and on the run, living in caves and in holes in the ground uh, from, from Saul, who is pursuing his life. And most commentators believe that Cush, uh, who it says is a Benjamite, Saul was also a Benjamite, that Cush was probably one of Saul's advisors, uh, and that he had stirred up Saul's heart against David to pursue him, saying that David was trying to overthrow him, even when that is not the case. And so David is experiencing a great sense of injustice. And justice is something uh, that is talked about quite a bit, actually, in our world today, in the news and in politics and, and in life. But I think that um, in our context from where we sit, I'm not saying that none of us have experienced injustice because I know many of us have and many of us will. It's something that's somewhat common uh, to humanity. However, I want to be clear as we get started here this morning on what I'm talking about when I'm talking about injustice. And what I'm not talking about when I speak of injustice is simply um, the referees making a bad call against your basketball team and a foul that should have been called, or a double dribble that should have been called, just doesn't get called. And, oh, we got robbed. It's so unjust. That's, yeah, I mean, better days ahead, okay? But that's, uh, that's not what I'm talking about. I am not talking about when somebody cuts you off on the interstate and decides to drive 55 in the fast lane, and you can't get around them. And by the way, it's not a left and a right lane. There is a fast lane and a slow lane. And uh, if you are one of those people, the gas is on the right. Press it. Um, but that's not what I'm talking about, as frustrating as that is. Um, I'm not talking about when somebody jumps ahead of you at the Walmart checkout line 
and you're trying, you've got like one item, you know, you just ran in to get some milk, and you're coming back out, and somebody with a cart full of groceries goes through the 20 items or less uh, checkout line. Don't do that either, okay? Drive fast if you're in the fast lane, and don't do that at Walmart. Uh, but that's not what I'm talking about, what I'm speaking about injustice. What the Bible defines as injustice is abusing power by taking from others the good things that God intended for them. It's abusing power by taking from others the good things that God intended for them. And I got that definition from Gary Haugen, who is the, the founder and president of International Justice Mission. <coughs> um, and I agree with it. I agree with it wholeheartedly. Again, it is abusing power by taking from others the good things that God intended for them. It is when husbands or men abuse their wives, their girlfriends, and their kids. That is an injustice. It is when people with social and or political power uh, abuse it. Um, it is when uh, cops pull over people um, and question them and humiliate them in front of their wife and kids who may be along just because their skin is not the right color. And hear me, I'm not at all saying that all cops do that uh, at all. There are way more good cops than bad cops. Uh, but you're foolish if you think it doesn't happen. That is an injustice. It is an abuse of power. There's social power that gets abused. When kids that are popular and that are good looking and that are good at sports, and you don't have to feel guilty if you are any of those things, but when you bully other kids, when you make fun of them, uh, just because they're not as good looking, or not as popular, or not as good at sports, or not as smart. That is an abuse of power. It is an injustice. There is political power that gets abused. Um, you guys know that we have done some work in the past, and Lord willing, I really pray that in the next couple of months we're going to be able to revive some of the work uh, that we've done out on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in South Dakota. Uh, over the years, America has made 370 treaties with Native American Indians. America has broken every single one of them. Every single one. It is a political abuse of power. There's a combination of all of them. There's financial power, social power, um, political power, where they all overlap. This past week, um, the elders and I, well, all except for Matt, who is deathly ill, but he's feeling better now, but we were out at, the, at a conference in Indianapolis, the Gospel Coalition Conference, and I heard David Platt speak about a place in the Himalayas that he has personally been himself and is, and is Lord willing, going back in about a month or so to a completely unreached people group. Um, they are poverty-stricken. His main point was that the, the physical need is great, but the spiritual need is just as great. And um, in many of these little villages, 
there are not a lot of teenage girls because men from other cities and other villages come in and they prey upon their poverty by offering the parents and the girls good jobs in the city and that promise them that they'll be able to send money back to support their families who are literally dying of poverty. And they take them and they enslave them. And they put them into the slave trade. Uh, that is an abuse of power. And it's wrong. And it's unjust. And it's what is primarily the issue in the psalm that we just read here this morning, Psalm 7. And what we see in the psalm this morning is that there's essentially, just for us to work through it here, there's essentially three perspectives on injustice that are set before us. They are the perspective of David, the perspective of the wicked, and the perspective of Paul. So David's perspective or experience, you might say, with injustice, the wicked's perspective or experience with injustice, and God's perspective on injustice, which we will, we will end with. And so I want to look at this this morning, and I, want to, I, said all, I gave all those examples up front, and literally that's just the, it's just the tip of the iceberg um, as far as examples of where injustice takes place, and I hope that uh, in me saying that, that maybe many have come to your own mind as, we've, as I've listed some of those examples of injustice. And I want us from these three perspectives of David, the wicked, and, and of God to just try to understand it a little bit more. Um, because, and, and we'll get here eventually, and I'll explain this statement more towards the end. But as God's people, people who have experienced grace, unmerited, free, sovereign grace that changes our heart, and that causes us to love what is truly lovely, namely God. Those who have experienced grace should be those who fight for justice more than anyone. And I want that to be true of us. And grace is a big deal for us. But I want to say up front that if we say that we understand grace, but that we do not work for justice and for freedom for those who are oppressed by injustice, then I don't think we really do understand grace. And I want us, and I want us to get there individually for myself, for you, and, and as a church. But let's look at Psalm 7. <coughs> First of all, <coughs> excuse me, David's, David's experience or perspective, you might say, on injustice. It was common, it was concerning, it was confusing, and it caused him to cry out to God. It was common, concerning, confusing, and it caused him to cry out to God. First of all, it was, it, it was common. Like David experienced this a lot. Throughout his life, he experienced this not just at the hands of Saul, although that was a big chunk of his life. For about a decade of his life, uh, he was on the run from, from Saul, uh, and he was pursuing him for unjust reasons. But later on, you know, Absalom tries to overthrow, overthrow him. There's all sorts of conspiracies. As you read First and Second Samuel, I mean, it's just constantly, David is constantly at war uh, or at battle or trying to quell some sort of uh, conspiracy against him. And it's not just David. Guys, it's, it's injustice is common to the human experiences, some more than others. Uh, but Paul 
experienced it. Peter experienced it. Stephen, the first martyr, experienced it. Jeremiah experienced it. And Paul says quite clearly in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. If you desire to follow Jesus, as we sang about a little bit earlier, if you desire to follow him, if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, you will be persecuted. Meaning, like, like you will experience injustice. You will be mistreated if you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus. Now, if you desire to live a lukewarm, American, comfortable Christianity life in Christ Jesus, you probably won't. But all those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. This is what God wants from us. Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Here's it, here it is. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Do justice. John chapter 15, on the night that Jesus was going to be arrested and betrayed, he told his disciples, he goes, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all things, but all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Injustice is common to the Christian life. Secondly, it's concerning You'll see here as we get into the text, one and two, he's, David is saying, O Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. And, and when David says it, he's literally talking about having his life saved. There is a man, and not just a man, but a, man, a powerful man with an army pursuing him, trying to take his life. Verse two, he says, lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. He's saying, God, there's no way that I can escape the power of this king and of this army apart from you. And again, they are pursuing him for unjust causes. And then, thirdly, it's confusing, and it causes us to cry out to God. This is the proper response. And I say confusing because, as you'll see in here, like jump down to verse 6, David says, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. And he says, awake for me. It's literally, he's saying, wake up, God. Do you not see what's happening? I mean, if you've ever experienced injustice personally or known somebody that has experienced injustice that you care about, this is how you want to respond. You're saying, God, do you not see this? God, do you not understand that this is going on? And again, this is common to the Christian experience and wanting to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, that there are times where you will be confused by it, but in that confusion, God allows those times in our life so that we will cry out to him. For he alone is truly our deliverer. If you jump back again to verse 3, he says, O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friends with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it, and let him trample my life to the ground. And lay my glory in the dust, Selah. David is not afraid to call out to God 
for God to judge the situation. And, and let me point out here too that we're talking about a very specific situation. Okay, and so when David's calling out for judgment, he has already, he, he's been justified by God. He's run to God for mercy. He's not, he's not saying, God, Lord, I'm totally righteous and just accept me on the basis of my righteousness. But he's saying in this situation, what they're accusing me of, this is not right. David knows that he's a sinner. David knows that he needs grace. Throughout the Psalms, as we've been looking at these through the first six chapters, you notice that David will say over and over again, God, you are my righteousness. You are my righteousness. And so David here is not promoting some sort of righteousness of his own, but he's saying, Lord, in this situation, I've not done what they're accusing me of, and they have no reason to be pursuing my life. And so he cries out to God to act, to do something. And guys, when, when, we, when we understand that we've been justified by grace, that God has forgiven our sins, and that we are now made right with him. And you guys have heard me say this before. When you put your faith and trust in Christ, it's like a judge bringing the gavel down. It's literally a legal term, and it's, the judge says, not guilty. And there's no double jeopardy in our court system or in God's. And he says, you're not guilty. We're justified before him. The judge has made his ruling. But when we are justified by grace, it allows us a certain honesty and transparency before God that I don't think that we have if we've not been justified. Like it's David here, and we saw this last week in Psalm 6 too, when David draws near to God here and asks him to come and to judge, and, and he even puts his own life on the line here. He says again, verse 3, Oh Lord, if, if I've done this, if there's wrong in my hands, if I've repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. He goes down again down in, down in verse 8, The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. Again, not that he's perfect, but in this situation, he's innocent. And you know, you know there's a proverb, I forget the reference right now, but there's in, in the book of Proverbs, not like a Chinese proverb or something. But it says, the wicked flee when no one pursues. But the righteous are as bold as a lion. And see, when you've been made righteous by God, you're not afraid of anything. Like stuff comes into your life, trials and tribulations come. Say, God, okay, I don't understand this. This hurts. I'm confused. I cry out to you. But Lord, bring all of your righteousness, bring all of your judgment into the entire situation, including my life. Because Lord, you know that the place that I'm standing is only at the cross. It's only under the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that makes me righteous. So no, Lord, you know my whole life. So Lord, come, bring all of your righteousness, all of your judgeness into my life and into the situation. And show me what is right. But many times, guys, and, I, and again, I, I want this to be helpful, not condemning in any way. But I, I've seen it in my own life, and I've seen uh, it in the lives of Christians where difficulties, persecution, um, uh, resistance, animosity from somebody, it comes into their life, and instead of standing bold like a lion... We run away like the wicked. And, and I think it come, it's a gospel issue. It comes back to the fact that we don't understand that if God is for us, 
who could be against us? Even if it seems like they're against us, and it seems like um, they're going to take us out, or we've been accused of something, we don't have to run from it. We can be honest. We can be transparent, even if we have actually messed up. See, understanding justification is one of the greatest truths that will help us to practically live a life of transparency. See, even David here in this situation is innocent, but even when David does mess up, even later on, you read Psalm 51 after he sinned with Bathsheba, um, he, he confesses his sin because he knows that God is his righteousness. And I just want to ask you this morning, just very practically, are, are, you, are you standing bold like a lion this morning, or are you constantly running, trying to hide, not trying to stay in the shadows, not wanting anybody to see you? And when difficulty comes, you don't stand bold and show that you know your God and that God knows you and that he is your shield and protector. But instead, you're always trying to tell lies here to cover up these lies, to cover up those lies, to cover up this lie, to cover up this act over here. When we've been justified by faith through grace in our Lord Jesus Christ, there should be a boldness and a transparency that comes and say, Lord, come. Bring your judgments into this situation because I know that in the end I stand only righteous because of the shed blood of Christ. Does that make sense? And so if you're running this morning, I want to tell you the place you need to run to is the cross (laughs) and come back to his mercy and to his grace so that you can live a life of boldness that does not fear the judgment of God because you know you've been covered. Secondly, the thing I want to look at here, the second perspective, and I want to jump ahead here because I want to end I want to end with God's perspective. But if you'll jump ahead to verses 14 through 16, you have the perspective of the wicked or the wicked's experience with injustice. And there's, there's one primary image here. Well, actually, there's a couple, but one that I want to spend the most time on, verse 14. What is the wicked's perspective on injustice? It, quite literally in the text, it's their baby. They love it. Verse 14. Behold, The wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief. And then what? And he gives birth to lies. The wicked here doesn't run away injustice, doesn't fight it, but he loves it. And injustice happens, he gives birth to it, to these lies and the stuff, when he somehow has moments of intimacy with darkness and with the devil and with sin. And the wicked here in the context is, again, it's this, it's this person that's very intentional and premeditated upon the evil that they are committing. But James, I believe, picks up on this image in James chapter 1, very similar language, and he applies it just simply to all of us when we sin. Why you sin? Well, here's what happens. James tells us, James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured, and he is enticed. By what? By his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Again, 
James chapter 1 and Psalm chapter 7, they're not exactly the same, but it's a lot of the same language and the same idea. And so all of us being born sinful and all of us apart from Christ being capable of being this wicked person and in some way, all of us too, uh, uh, before we knew Christ, we, we were this guy. And we conceive evil, we're pregnant with mischief, and we give birth to lies. How do we cut off this, intimi- this intimacy with the darkness that causes us to eventually give birth to evil? Well, here's how. Instead of pursuing intimacy with sin and with our sinful desires and with the darkness, we must pursue intimacy with Christ. There's no other way. You cannot stop the evil that is inside of you guys. Can't stop it. There's only one who could stop it, and it's Jesus. And as we give him access to our life, as we draw near to him, he draws near to us, and as we are intimate with him, he becomes the lover of our soul. And he is the only one who can defeat sin in your life. And if you have a habitual sin problem, it is because you first have a love and an intimacy problem. And it's with who you're being intimate with. Your desires in the world or Jesus? Choose Jesus. Choose to draw near to him. Knowing that because of the cross, we can know for certain that right now, in this time and space in which we live, meaning, i.e., before Christ's second coming, before he comes back and judges the world, as we're going to look at here shortly, right now there's opportunity to draw near to him, to be intimate with him, and have him conceive something in you that will bring life and that will be good, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and things like that. Um, That's what he wants to birth in us, but it only happens as we choose to be intimate with him and not with our sinful desires, with the darkness, and with the world. And the end of the wicked here, again, it's, it's their baby, but there's a couple more pictures. Verse 15, he makes a pit, digging it out, and he falls into the hole that he has made. He's made this pit for somebody else. This pit is not for him, but he's the one that ends up falling into it. And his mischief, even though it was intended for somebody else's head, it returns upon his own head, and upon his own skull, his violence descends, even though it seems like he gets away with it for a while. And I want to stop here, and, and, and as we look lastly at God's, God's perspective and God's experience with injustice, um, I want to say, guys, that, that it seems like the bad guys win a lot, doesn't it? Has anybody ever thought that? It doesn't seem like the bad guys can sometimes win. I don't know, there's a couple of movies uh, I've watched, well, you know, usually the classic movie is the good guy wins, the good guy triumphs. But I guess it's kind of a popular thing. I don't know if, you know, these filmmakers just want everybody to leave the movie theater just being totally depressed and despairing or what, but it's like every now and then there's a movie where it's like the bad guy wins. You're like, what? You know? um, but it seems like that. It seems like that sometimes. Uh, But in the end, 
the wicked is going to fall into the old, their own hole that they've dug to try to catch you. They will not win. And the reason they ultimately will not win, and this is where I really wanted to get to, <coughs> is because God has an experience. And God has a perspective on injustice as well. And a man, I love this. I love this. Look at verse 11. And we could just camp out here for several weeks. God is a righteous judge. And he is a God who feels indignation every day. Let me read that again. God is a righteous judge. And he is a God who feels. There's a very unique place in Scripture. There are a few others. But when it talks specifically, not just about what God knows, not just what, about what God has planned, not just about what will happen in the future because God has planned it all. He's the Alpha and the Omega. But it's a unique place in Scripture when it says very directly what God feels. And see, many, many times we don't even think that God feels anything. We, we have this, this mental picture of him because he's sovereign and because he knows all and he's all-knowing, he's the Alpha and the Omega, he's marked out the end from the beginning, he knows all these things, that we feel like he's just somehow kind of ambivalent to the whole thing. And he's just sitting up there and he's like, oh yeah, I know this is going to happen. Well, I knew that was going to happen too. I knew that was going to happen. Yeah, I knew that was, I'm not surprised by that. I knew that was going to happen. And we just take him as kind of like emotionless, not engaged in all in the pain and suffering that we're experiencing. And this is what I get pushed back on all the time because, you know, here as part of our doctrinal statement and, you know, me being the primary communicator here, and I get, I'm not making it up. It's not an Eric thing. It's a Bible thing is that God is totally sovereign. Every day ordained for you was written in his book before one of them came to be. That's a direct quote from Psalm 139. He's not shocked by anything. Nothing got to your life without first getting permission from him. And so the tension comes. We say, okay, okay well, Eric, you're, you're telling me that God is good, but yet you're telling me that God, that nothing gets to my life apart from you know, passing through God's permission first. But this thing stinks. This hurts. This is painful. And not just a little bit, but a lot. This has wrecked my life, and I want this to be a comfort to you this morning because I believe that this is why it's here. I believe it was a comfort to David. Is that God in his sovereignty is not just sitting back and, yeah, well, I'm sovereign. It's part of my plan. You don't have to understand. Just deal with it. He feels indignation towards it deeply. If you were abused, if you were taken advantage of, if you were molested, I cannot explain it all, and I, I, I hate nice, simple, pat answers that Christians try to give, and so I'm not trying to do that. But I will tell you these two things that I know, maybe three. God is good. He is sovereign. Okay, make it four. He has purpose in your suffering. And as you were suffering, he wept over it. He burns hotly towards it. That's what this idea, he feels indignation towards it.
And whoever has committed evil against you, listen to me. They will not get away with it. Their sin will be judged at one of two places. Their sin will either be judged at the cross if they repent, or their sin will be judged in hell forever. We're not playing games here. Again, as David is dealing with his specific instance of injustice in the text, it's kind of like he has these prophetic moments. You see this throughout the Psalms, and you see the writers of the New Testament attaching themselves to him and applying them to Christ. But, you know, he's, again, in verse 6 and 7, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the fury of my enemies. But he says, Awake for me. He goes, For you have appointed a judgment. And he's not just talking here about the judgment of a situation. He's talking about the ultimate judgment. Verse 7. Because Then he says this, Let the assembly of peoples be gathered around you, And then he says, over it, return on high. Is that the judgment of God, guys, that he is going to judge all wickedness and unrighteousness one day when he returns. That is given to us, and if we have had our sin judged at the cross through Jesus by running to him and receiving mercy and grace, then his return and his judgment, it is good news I want to show you from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 how Paul applies the reality, the teaching of the second coming of Christ and of his judgment at that time that it is is supposed to be a comfort and good news to Christians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 3 says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love that every one of you has for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfast and faith in all your persecutions and in your afflictions that you are enduring. Now listen, verse 5, they're enduring affliction, okay? They're being persecuted. They're being unjustly treated. This is evidence, though, of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the Lord of glory and his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. Because our testimony to you was believed. Do you see what Paul's doing there? I know that was a lengthy passage, but he's saying, guys, you're being unjustly treated. He says, but there's coming a day. There's coming a day when our Savior, when our Redeemer, he is going to stand upon the earth again. And all the wrong all the injustice, all the abuse 
verbal, physical, sexual, or otherwise, it is going to be dealt with, and it's going to be dealt with by God. And so we endure. So we, we take courage. We don't shrink back. We don't flee like the wicked. We're bold like a lion. And we bear up under the weight of it and we say, God will deal with this. God will deal with this. Our small church has been going through the book of Revelation, which has been interesting, you know. Beasts and dragons and four-headed animals and all sorts of cool stuff. And we've just been kind of taking it a chapter at a time, and we're primarily focusing just on the nature and the character of Christ that's found in it. But Revelation chapter 5, this is just so... It's just so moving to me. Is that John, he, in chapter 4, he gets caught up into heaven. And he's just, it's all about this throne. The word throne is repeated, I don't know how many times. And uh, it, the one who sits on the throne. The reason the throne's important is because there's somebody important sitting on the throne. And everybody's just worshiping all the time. It's just 24-7, nonstop worship of this glorious God who sits on the throne. But then, chapter 5. And just listen. He says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Here's what the angel says, who has this scroll now. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And then get verse 4. Verse 4. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and to look into it. Why was John weeping? Here's why. This scroll, to explain this a little bit, this scroll is like the title deed, not just to the earth, but to all of the universe and to all of history. And if you've been on the earth or on the planet for any amount of time, you know that there is a lot of hurt, there is a lot of pain, there is a lot of suffering, and there is much injustice. And Whoever owns this earth where all this darkness is happening and in all of the universe and in all of history throughout all of time, somebody needs to step forward and take this scroll and say, this is mine and I will make it right. And the angel says, who's worthy to do this? And it's like there's a, it seems like there's a period of time and nobody can come forth. And so John begins to weep. And the reason he's weeping is because this mess is going to continue. This injustice is going to continue. Who's going to step up and own this and make it all right? And there's nobody. And so John begins to weep, but then verse 5. But then one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, 
the root of David, he has conquered. And he can come and he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who can open the scroll. There is one who's worthy to come back, claim ownership of this whole mess and make it right. And he is Jesus. And he is going to do it. And I pray that that comforts your heart this morning. Because this line of the tribe of Judah, again, very interesting, and I don't, (laughs) Revelation can really suck you in, okay? But as he goes on here, again, he's told the line of the tribe of Judah will do this. But then he turns, verse 6, and says, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing, as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And don't miss this. Title deed to all the earth, all of history, all of the universe. Nobody's worthy. Who's worthy? Who can open it? There's nobody. Oh no, what are we going to do? The lion will do it. John's, okay, he turns. But instead of seeing a lion, he sees a lamb who's been slain who suffers. Worship team, you can come up and we'll begin to close. And the reason that that imagery is so powerful is if you remember at the beginning of the message I I just mentioned that I wanted to get here eventually that that, uh, people, us, hopefully, who understand grace, that people who understand grace should be more zealous for justice than any other people because we understand just how near and dear it is to the heart of God is that the lamb that was slain was Jesus Christ and he is the only one who can take the title deed of the earth and make this whole thing right because he came and he will not just judge it but he also saves those who run to him for mercy and for grace and here's what I want to say is that if you have experienced the grace that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ, it is only because God was absolutely committed to justice in his kingdom. Let me say that again. If you have experienced the grace that flows from the cross of Jesus Christ, if you're a Christian, it is only because God was absolutely committed to justice, to upholding justice, in his kingdom. Conrad, can I get that verse up there? Romans chapter 3. From our perspective, the cross, it's grace, it's love, it's mercy, it's forgiveness, it's adoption, it's every other good thing. But from God's perspective, the cross is justice. Let me show you what I mean in Romans chapter 3. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or made known apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And they are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Listen, whom God put forward 
as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Why did he do this? This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Verse 26 again. It was to show his righteousness or his justice, you could insert in there, at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Here's what he's saying. Here's how sure you can be that God is going to make every wrong right. Is that he is so committed to justice. Is that even though he loved us, he would not accept us as we were, which were sinful enemies. We were the wicked. But he is so committed to having his kingdom be established upon the foundation of justice that he sent his son to die so that his blood would cover us so that we could be justified so that we could be truly made right before him and that he could accept us into his kingdom and if he is so willing to uphold justice to the place that he's willing to send his own son to die for his enemies so that his enemies might have eternal life for all those who reject God and who have worked evil against you and do not run to the cross. Christian, I want it to be a comfort to you this morning that God will make it right. He will make it right. As certainly as God cares about the sacrifice of his son he will make it right in your life and if we've received this grace know that it's because God was upholding justice and we need to fight for it as he did Father I thank you this morning for your word I thank you that you're a God of justice and because you're a God of justice Lord that we've received grace and acceptance in you. Lord, I pray that uh, you would help us to run to you again this morning as we take communion, as we uh, come again to the cross. I pray that our hearts would be stirred both in amazement at the lengths to which you went to uphold justice in your kingdom that you had to send your son so that you could do it and accept us. But Lord, I pray that our hearts would also be stirred to take action and to know that wherever injustice exists, whether it be social, political, financial, that we would take action as your people, as your body, knowing that uh, you feel indignant towards it every single day and that you care. Please use us to glorify your name. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You guys